Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people just like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. This podcast tells their story. My guest is James Park, Jamesy of Jamesy World and Eating My Feelings. If you saw Jamesy, you would think he was like any other young New Yorker. But James has an interesting and unique story. He moved from South Korea to the American South by himself when he was 13 years old. After attending middle school in Austin and high school in Alabama, he went to college in New York City where his determination to share his strong feelings about food led him to create a YouTube channel, then attend culinary school, and after graduation work for Eater in social media where he had the chance to interact with many of his culinary idols like Ina Garten and Mangchi. Jamesy, welcome to Ate the World. Yeah, thanks for asking me to join your podcast. And yeah, uh, this, is, this, this is really cool. I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a lot in common. Um, I went to business school. You went to business school. I went to cooking school. You went to cooking school. And I think we both spent a good portion of our lives in both North America and in Asia, just maybe not at the same time and not in the same places. So um, what I'd love to do is talk a little bit about who you are, what your journey is, and a lot of the foods that, that, that make you happy. Is that, how does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so my background... Um, yeah, like just like you, I sort of went to college for business school. It was sort of my compromise with my family uh, because I originally wanted to go into like acting and all that fun stuff. Um, but I felt like, I don't know, I feel like this is so cliche, but like I just felt like if I were to pursue that, like it would be a little disappointing for my parents or so. So the negotiation that I had with my parents was that I would go into this like a arts management, like business focused thing. So I thought I would like, I don't know, big the big guy on like Broadway doing business stuff and blah, blah, blah. Um, but um when I came to New York that's sort of when I like discovered this new world of cooking and food that I didn't necessarily have an access to when I grew up in Alabama um yeah also I grew up in Alabama <laughs> I spent my chunk of like my life there so I think when I said that to many people they were all just kind of like surprised that like I even like spent time in like such a place like Alabama. Um, well, it's funny because you, you grew up in, in Pohang and yes. I haven't been to Pohang. So just for people listening in, Pohang is to South Korea what Pittsburgh used to be for America. In America, there was this huge company called US Steel. And in Pohang, there's POSCO, which is yeah. massive. If you've, if you've lived in Asia, you know how big POSCO is and, and the effect it, you know, it's not that Pohang is entirely a POSCO town, but it kind of is, it's right? It's entirely POSCO town. I'm surprised that you even know about it. That's awesome. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in Korea um, looking at companies, and I've spent time close to Pohang in uh, in Daegu. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. So Yeah, it's great. So, um, so from there, you moved to Austin for a little bit, yes. then Alabama for a little bit. So middle school, Austin, Alabama for high school. Yes. 
And at what point did you think, you know, I want to be a New Yorker? Uh, I didn't know that I necessarily wanted to be a New Yorker, but I knew that I wanted to move to a city. So my college like uh, decision process was very much like, what city do I want to live? So I looked into like Boston, New York, and like all these other big cities in the East Coast. And then I think New York just kind of like sounded most appealing. And when I was going through different places, like when I first landed in New York, I still remember like the flight that I landed in LaGuardia. I just felt this like adrenaline going in my body. I'm like, okay, like this is like New York, you know, like I, Huang is not necessarily a big city. Um, So, you know, whenever I kind of dreamed about like a Western cities or even America, I think like, I thought of like Times Square, I thought of New York. So it all just kind of makes sense to me. Maybe like this is where I'm meant to be. And like, I felt it the moment that I really like walked on the street. And like when I saw these sky, you know, sky high buildings and all the similar scenes that I used to see in movies. So that was really cool. So had you visited New York before you went to Pace or was that uh, really, you just jumped in blind? I just kind of jumped in blind. So like I grew up with a host family um, because I came to America at such a young age. I, without my family, I kind of had to live with different host families. And the one who took me to New York is the one that I still keep in touch with. And they're the ones who are like unofficially adopted me. And they were like right. the only uh, non-Korean family that I really lived with. And that was kind of like my gateway to understand more of an American culture and those kind of like American Southern hospitality family values that I still have right now. Uh, and she just kind of took me there. I think she knew that I wanted to be in New York, but like it would have been a little bit scary for me to kind of make a decision without even visiting. So she joined me on that trip and like she really opened the door um, so that I could feel comfortable in a new city. And yeah, and I kind of ease into um, the decision to go to Pace University and all the other things that would happen in my life in New York. That's that's so similar to what I went through when I was 22. I moved to Hong Kong, mm. sight unseen. I had some friends from there, and they said, you know, go to Hong Kong. It's it's you know the world is 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 really changing a lot. And for what's happening in China, a lot of the focus back then was through Hong Kong. And I hopped off the plane and I looked around and and you know I smelled the the compoy on the streets of of, uh, of Western District, and immediately I took to the city. And it was a big leap, but I, I felt, you know, I was in the right place. That's awesome. What made you want to go to Hong Kong? Well, it's interesting. So I studied um, finance. I went to Wharton. And when I was um, 20 years old, I spent a summer in Japan. And I loved Japan. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting and different. And at the time, it was during their big bubble economy and everybody was going crazy and it was wonderful, but it was somewhat sobering because in terms of understanding Japan and Japanese culture, um, you know, showing up 
as someone who is 22 years old, not affiliated with the company, not Japanese. And, you know, all these different boxes were checked. And I felt that um, this is a great place to visit. You know, I'm happy to, to fall in love with the place, but it really isn't the right place for me to start my career. Mm. And then when I got back to school, I was talking to some friends of mine um, and they said, well, you know, all these different things that you're talking about, you know, Hong Kong is not like that, especially back in 92. Hong Kong is one of these places where you, you show up and magically things can happen if you're, if you're lucky. And that's why I chose Hong Kong. Wow, that's amazing. So you like started a career like in a different city in a way? I started a career in a different city, in a different country, in, in, a, in a completely different part of the world. That's amazing. Um, that's so brave of you <laughs> to do that. Well, hold on a second. I mean, if you're 13 years old and you're moving to like Austin, Texas, and at the time, did you speak English? Uh, not really. Just like how a lot of Americans would speak like Spanish. Um, I knew So about you did it. like cram school English. Yeah. And I think English is just one of those subjects in, you know, Korean school system that like, I knew things, but it wasn't like conversational. Um, right. Yeah. So the cult, so what kind of food were you eating when you were young, young? Like what kind of food did your mom prepare? So I didn't necessarily grow up with my mom's cooking. I don't necessarily have a relationship or memories of like my mom cooking for me because my mom was always like busy with her work. So I actually grew up with like one of our neighbors um, who mostly like fed me and like took care of me and she always told me and my family that like my taste buds are like a grandpa even though I was such a young kid then uh so I will go for like like which is a Korean soybean paste over like any other western food that my friends would prefer like pizza like I didn't necessarily like pizza I didn't like cheese like I wasn't really exposed to these kind of western food when I grew up so like I think um my auntie who I call so she's my neighbor but like she really became a part of my family and my life and my auntie just cooked a bunch of things that she would eat uh, she didn't necessarily have to cook anything for me because I enjoyed everything that she would eat so I really developed this palate and appreciation for like real Korean food and I didn't even try any other different cuisines like Italian or I don't know, even Indian, like Chinese and all of that till I came to America. And then what was your Austin family like in, in terms of the kind of foods that they served you and how was that transition? Yeah, that was mostly Korean food, uh, but we would go explore together. So the family who originally like made me leave Korea was uh, someone who I already knew and she was also there kind of like for the first time in America. And like, we all sort of felt together that like, there was kind of like a unity and connection that like, we're foreigners in America, we're going to figure this out together, we're going to explore together. So each weekend, uh, we would try different things. And even though our like daily meal was mostly Korean, um, we would go out and like try Mexican food. And like, I remember that like we went to Taco Bell for the first time as if it was like a real restaurant. And like we sat there and like we ordered like Mexican pizza. I think that was like a menu item. And like it was so horrendous and it was 
I don't know. It was just <laughs> terrible. And we were all just like, what is this? Like, this tastes awful. And like, we all just like, I think like after that, I had such a trauma and like, I didn't really want to try Mexican food till like a few years later. And now I love Taco Bell, but like, I don't know why I have such a horrible memory of trying Mexican pizza. And I don't even know why it tasted like garbage. It was just like, we were all just appalled by the taste. Um, but and it sticks with you. Like yeah, 15, that Taco Bell later. memory was just so vivid. It is still so vivid that like we were sitting like, you know, we were the only Asians in this like a uh, Taco Bell store you know i don't i don't know whether americans would like actually eat at those kind of stores because i think those are like you know fast food takeout so like people usually do drive through but like we just like went inside order it like sat down there was no one else except us and like i don't know why we necessarily order mexican pizza but like other things were fine like i think like i didn't necessarily like find like those tacos like bad or like good it was just like okay this is interesting but like the mexican pizza was just so horrendous that we all just had to like leave like i felt like i was gonna throw up it was just so bad i don't know why that story just sticks out to me because it it that's kind of like what stopped me from trying different things and like i love mexican cuisine now but like that was kind of like the first horrible intro, not even an accurate introduction of what Mexican food was, you know, back then. But I think, I think there's something true about there's something true about the story, which is if you're in it, if you're in a, um, in a different place, in a different culture and you're, you're up for the challenge in your game, but without a little bit of guidance and a little bit of a clue, you could just go down the wrong road and you wouldn't know that right next to that Mexican pizza on the menu would have been something that would have been delicious. Yeah. And like, we didn't really have any guidance or friends who were Mexicans or who even be fluent or knowledgeable in the flavors of like Mexican cuisine. Um, So our way of like sort of trying was like, okay, Taco Bell, that's, kind of there and we saw Mexican pizza so yeah I wish someone would actually introduce me to things so I think that's why like a lot of my friends and I just talk about food and like I'll kind of choose my friends who can introduce me to things that I don't necessarily know and tell me about Alabama like what were you eating back then oh Alabama Mm, there's a lot of like stuff that I ate but one thing that's like so dear to me is this pickled okra that my American grandma makes um I wasn't like a big fan of okra but like her pickled okra is like as almost like crispier than like Lay's potato chips like the snap was just so crisp and it was just like a perfect balance of like that salty sweet a snappy pickle that I would literally go through the whole jar at one seating and we would like fight over who's gonna eat more pickled okra so like every time I come home to Alabama she would like make a jar for me and it's just not I can't find anything like that and, and it's just pickled okra. It's okra yeah, it's with pickling spices okra. and you just let it sit. I don't even know what's so special, but I have never tasted anything 
as good as her pickled okra. And like, I think a lot of people think okra would be like slimy or like not as good or like they they wouldn't they wouldn't associate okra to like crisp um but it's just so snappy and like there's no slime whatsoever it's it's like so refreshing it really makes you like want to eat more it's like a perfect appetizer and like i would never get tired of eating that so then you move to New York and go to school. I have to say, so all of these things, like I'm, I'm associating your business school, my business school, cooking school, cooking school and travel and everything. The one thing that I have to say is, is different is that it seems that as, you know, it was easy for me to do research because I can just look back on YouTube. I can look back on Instagram and your entire life seems to be almost native to social media in a way that I'm just starting to figure out now. Yeah. And you, you had a YouTube channel, you've got a brand, um, you're the social media manager for Eater, you're, you've got 10,000 followers on, on Instagram. How did this, how did, how did you feel about social media and in terms of what you wanted to do with food, it, it, it seems almost like social media was always a part of this. I think when I first sort of like thought about a career, that's when like food media really burst out with like those top down cooking videos. That's when BuzzFeed came out with like Tasty. There were so many different brands like Tastemade or like, you know, all these other brands who would just make like very delicious looking social first videos. So I just focused a lot on those um, because I was preparing to go into my like senior in college and that's when everyone was talking about it. And like, as a part of my focus with business, I sort of had to think about like food outside of just like cooking. Um, so I think that's when I noticed like what social media would do to like food and just kind of like a food community. Um, so I didn't necessarily think that like, I'm going to go into social media for my career or anything like that, but I knew that there was a business opportunity or some sort of a job opportunities if I wanted to go into food world without necessarily working in a restaurant. Sure. Um, Yeah. And before, I mean, you, at the very beginning, you spoke about having this conflict between wanting to be an actor and having a practical career. Was this conflict internal or was it purely external? Like I wanted this and my parents wanted that. It was kind of both because it wasn't cheap for me to come to America and like really go to school and everything because I wasn't an American citizen I would have to go to a private school which cost a lot of money to my family and I'm not you know like I didn't grow up with like a rich family or anything we were very just humble middle lower class so it's kind of like old miraculous how everything kind of happened um because like if let's say that like in Korea, if you're rich, like you will work with this like institution who would do all the dirty work about like figuring out the visa and figuring out like the school system and like maybe show this family options of like this school is good, that school is good, blah, blah, blah. But like my family had no knowledge. I had no idea what I was doing. So it, it just, there were just a lot of sacrifices made 
with my family for me to be here. So when it was time for me to start going to college, I didn't know whether I needed to go somewhere that would make them proud or like just go something that I wanted to do. And like if I wanted to go something that I wanted to do, that would just kind of disappoint everyone. And like, I don't know, I just felt really guilty more than anything else. Um, but this whole idea of like what like acting and like wanting to I guess like be a personality or like be in front of a camera this desire was always with me like since I was a baby like I thought I was gonna be a Korean pop star like now it's crazy to think that like k-pop is like such a global phenomenon but like when I grew up like it was my dream to be like a k-pop star and like I was gonna go into all this auditions of like different companies and such but I swear I found a way to do that in America through like choir and like drama clubs and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I didn't ever know that I would be like good at those, but there were acclimates and like people really saw me as like a person or a talent, not just like this foreign Korean kid in America. So I think I felt really high. Um, with like happiness when people saw me as one rather than this Korean kid, because I think that was always like my insecurity growing up. Right. But you have this yeah. natural charisma. I mean, it comes across as, wow, I wish, you know, I, I wish I could be so forthright and do this. Um, I had the same, this is, I mean, your story is crazy because the, the feelings that you had when coming to America, I mean, I had this discussion with my parents before I went to Hong, Japan and Hong Kong. Yeah. And I have to say, they, they were less than supportive. So I had to basically pay my own way. And I, you know, I wasn't part of these, you know, because I ran in Hong Kong, especially at the very beginning, you'd run across um, people who were my age that were transferred over with big expat packages and they were doing great. And I was living in the fifth story walk up um, of a, of a, of a cheap chair apartment in, in the middle mm. of, uh, mid levels. And I thought I was doing great because, you know, this was something that I felt I really had to do. Um, and when you feel that way, you know, it's just easier to make decisions that lead in, in the direction that, that is true, true to yourself. Yeah. It's like, you decided to do that. It's not like there was an external pressure to make you do that. So I think, when you are making those decisions on your own or when you're pursuing things that you really want to do, um, you sort of become more creative and more like assuring, I guess, um, yes. with like, at the decisions that you make in life. But at the same time, it's not like these external pressures will just go away. I mean, you, oh, no. you, you know, yeah. it's very hard. Yeah. Very much so. So it was like, um, even like talk going back to like me deciding to go to culinary school, like I, I was kind of hesitant to bring that up to my parents. Um, but I just felt like it was such a great opportunity for me to go and they were hesitant to agree with that. But I think at that time, they kind of knew that like they couldn't really change 
my decisions or anything so like they try so hard to like you know change my direction whether that's coming to new york or what because they all their final goal is always come back to korea and do things great so like none of us kind of even expected me to stay in america for this long or continue to live or pursue a career here um but the culinary school thing i told them and they were very surprised and they were like kind of worried that like i was gonna become a poor chef or like are you gonna work in a restaurant and all of that so i think that's why i found all these different ways to get myself involved with food without like necessarily like going into the restaurant culture so that kind of brings back to like social media and like me seeking out to different opportunities that i could see myself doing well um but still surrounding myself with like food and like having a very close connection with that with whatever i do that's awesome so let's talk about corona for a little bit i mean how has it affected i mean you were in new york city but how has it affected what you were doing how you were doing things and how you were living yeah so i actually went to uh taiwan uh in march which was like the i guess kind of the start of it all especially like in america i think back then asia was sort of really suffering from like coronavirus damage but not necessarily in america um so i feel very happy that i find i got to travel before things got really worse but once i came back to new york that's kind of when you know it kind of blew everywhere every day there was like over 10,000 cases it was insane um so my coping mechanism was just kind of cooking and through this job at eater i would always kind of have this like a restaurant preview or like restaurant event so even though i really love cooking for myself i didn't necessarily have much time to do so so i just kind of leaned in um with this new normal of like staying at home so i cooked everything that i wanted to eat and like i basically updated my instruments for every single day with what i was cooking and it kind of became a routine and people really liked that and yeah i think corona really gave me the sense of um appreciation for cooking that i didn't necessarily have before and i feel like i found a community uh with like like-minded people uh on my instagram so i would just kind of like talk about it and like i just it's kind of my way of like forgetting this reality with um the original idea for eat the world was going to be and i'm in the suburbs in connecticut but uh-huh. in most towns you can find restaurants that will cater towards uh, small communities within that town, but you, these restaurants sometimes are completely overlooked. Yeah. So I thought it would be great to like go into like a local Haitian restaurant, order half the things from the menu, give some sort of profile to what I'm eating. And if someone had never tried Haitian food before, they would get a sense of, okay, if I'm eating this, it's going to taste like that. And here's some pictures. So if you went in, it'll be great. And coronavirus basically blew that idea out of the water because I'm not going into restaurants. Right. And instead, it was, I'll cook, 
I'm just going to show pictures of things I'm cooking at home and let's see what, what the reaction is. And, and surprisingly, the, the reaction was great. I mean, the community of people that are home cooks, I'm finding, at least on Instagram, they were very, very supportive. Very supportive. And it, I don't know, it's it really, it's so wholesome. And when the news is so terrible, like cooking and food is what really unites everyone. And that's what really brings a sense of community and that's what we're all lacking because we can really see each other in person as often as we like to and whether the platform is through instagram or any sort of social media even texting um like cooking and like food really gave me a sense of like community virtually um so i think that's just like so dear and special Recently, you, you did a dumpling crawl and you did like a flushing kind of walk around, right? Yeah. What is that like in a time of COVID? Hmm. I mean, it was kind of sad to see the different vibe. Like, you know, no matter how much I try to avoid the reality, the reality is that it's not the same it used to be. But I was inspired that a lot of these vendors are still, you know, cooking and like feeding the community. And I, it kind of gave me a sense of peace and comfort knowing that things can be different, but like the taste and that momentum of needing to feed ourselves or community is still there. So it was such a humbling experience in a way because I haven't been to Flushing for so many months since I came back from Taiwan. And just being back there, even though like the outside looked different with all this outdoor dining, some of the shops that I really enjoyed going there have been closed. But there's still this sense of like survival. There's this sense of like, we are still here. We're going to fight it through no matter what. And you can really taste that. And it hasn't changed it. And I just felt happy that I could still go back and visit certain places and support them one way or another. So I highly recommend everyone doing that. <laughs> so when you went, to, when you came to New York for the first time, were you exposed to things like Chinese food? No, I only knew what I knew. <laughs> I did not really know different things. Um, and it, like, you know, there is like no Korean dedicated Korean community or Korea town in Alabama. So when I went to K-Town in New York for the first time, I was like, oh my God, this is like just Korea. Like they, when I went to a restaurant, they would have menus that I love, but I hadn't seen like in years since I haven't been back to Korea. So like that's sort of like when I realized, oh my God, like, New York is something special. I didn't even know that New York has such a rich food scene. And then I sort of expanded to different neighborhoods and different cuisines because of all different walks of people that I met. And then I like went to Flushing for the first time and I went to like Jackson Heights and Queens. And that's what really like opened me up to so many things and I wanted it more. And that's when I knew that, okay, New York is going to be my home. And like, this is going to be a place where I can really taste and like expose to something that I wouldn't know. And it's all authentic. I mean, Queens itself, like you, you talk I about K-Town Queens. in Manhattan. I mean, there's so many different pockets of 
of truly authentic cuisine. Yeah, it, it makes me emotional, really. Like when I remember, I went to this restaurant called Myeongsan. Uh, it's a Korean restaurant, and like a little bit further down in Flushing, off the Roosevelt um, Road Avenue, whatever you call it. Um, and I order kanjang gejang, uh, which is a Korean soy marinated crabs, and like just the vibe of that place. Uh, it like it was just so Korean. Like everyone was Korean. I spoke to them in Korean, and like the TV was Korean. Like this restaurant could have been any roadside in rural Korea, and it would be still great. And the fact that I could go places like that. Just made me like so emotional. It took me like to Korea and all this nostalgic memories, and I love that I could go there if I want to in New York. It's like a true Korean food. Like I don't, I can't even describe. Like this would be a good restaurant in Korea, and it doesn't even feel like it's in New York. That's so. There, there are a bunch of places. Along that stretch that I've been to, where, yeah, it's it's the, it's the same everything. It's it's no different than walking around like Namdaemun, or it's it just feels so for so sure authentic. I feel like it's even more authentic than the ones in Korea because I feel like Korea is constantly evolving, and I think popular restaurants are just almost like a fusiony like Korean mm. food, but. The type of food that you will find in Myeongsan is like, it's like untouched. Like it's there's no Western influence there whatsoever, and it's not made for like you know young Korean people who love like melted cheese on everything. Right. I'm one of them. I literally melt cheese on everything that I make. But like, it's that type of like aesthetics vibe, like the. Just the feel of it, it kind of transport me back to like 80s and like 90s of those, you know, mom and pop shops that are currently struggling and kind of disappearing in Korea. What made you go to Taiwan? Uh, it was originally for my friend's wedding, but uh, the friend's wedding got canceled because of Corona. But I was like, I'm still gonna go. Um, and I don't know much about Taiwan or Taiwan culture, but I knew that, like, so I go to this restaurant called Eight A Six. It's a Taiwanese restaurant in St. Mark's, um, and I just love everything eating there. And I just wanted to go, and like, I have never been to another Asian country besides Korea. So I was like, I feel like, and also Taiwan is like the birthplace of like boba. Yes. I love boba. So I was like, I'm gonna eat so well, like, you know, I just, I can't wait to just explore. And I feel like I am, I don't know, like, uh, virtually Taiwanese because I just felt so connected to that culture. Um, and I, the connection that I didn't feel with like Japanese or any other like Asian cultures that I love and knew well, like just being in Taiwan, meeting people and like tasting the food and like the thing about Asian food to me is that it's so familiar yet so different. Yes, because I grew up with Korean flavors, so like it sounds, it it smells similar to like certain Korean dishes, but like it tastes completely different and like it just brings out so many like elements of 
I don't know, like when you first taste something really good and like you can't get enough of it and like you will forever remember your first taste of something. And I had so many of those moments while I was in Taiwan. I, I lived I in Taiwan. Wait to go back. You did? Where did you live in Taiwan? I lived in Taipei and I have to say I put on a lot of weight when I was there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I saw on your Instagram page that one of my favorite, you ate one of my favorite dishes ever in, in one of the things that if I'm ever in, in Taiwan, I have to, I have to have it. It's called misua. What um, was that? But it's misua is the rice noodles in the thick broth with garlic and cilantro and oh, the fresh yes. oysters and the yes, intestines. Yes, yes, That was like the third thing that I ate uh, the moment that I landed in Taiwan. <laughs> I remember and it's it's painful because there's this there's this tension that goes on which you know if you eat it too fast you'll burn the roof of your of your mouth so the waiting to be able to to get the temperature just right where you could eat it and then you see the floating bits of oyster yeah and uh, and pork intestines it's it's really amazing dish you know what's funny is that like even when I eat out with my friends like I think I just have such a higher tolerance of like eating hot food because. I guess I sort of grew up with that. Like, I don't know whether you had like Korean friends, but like when you look at Korean friends or Korean people, they eat like bubbling stew, like right off from the pot. And like, we are fine with that. We do not wait until it gets cooled down. We are like always burning our roof, mouth roof, you know. But Are you slurping? Are you using air to offset the heat or are you just going um, for it? Just going for it. Like, I I don't want to wait. Like, I I, I just kind of go into that. Maybe I slurp in a way, but if it's hot, it's hot. Like, that doesn't, like, stop me. <laughs> so let's talk about food for a bit because I, I'm, I want to go through this list of uh, – I when I was living in Singapore, I had a colleague of mine, and we would travel to Korea together for work. And uh-huh. the – you know, he knew that I was major foodie and I wanted to try new and different things. So he, he, I think he took it upon himself to say, well, let's see how far we can take it. Um, so I'll go through some of the things I've tried and, and I'd love to hear yes. your reaction. Uh, gopchang. Love gopchang. Like love, 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 love gopchang so much. <laughs> it's so, it's so funny because this was the first place that he took me. He goes, okay, we're going to have this barbecue thing. And it, effectively, it's barbecued pork intestine, the large intestine. Yes. Right? yes. And I'm looking at this and I take a bite and it's basically meaty and rich and fatty and there's a bit of char to it. And then there's like dipping sauces on. And I, I, and I'm, I, I say to him, I said, Lawrence, this is, is this the best you got? Because this is, this is awesome. Yeah. This isn't out there. This is just. It hits all the tastes that I that I love, and it's all the texture, and it's like the smell, and like, and it's all different parts of it. So like, kopchang is like one particular like part of intestine, I think. But like, if you get like an assortment, which I usually get whenever I go out to eat kopchang, like if you love kopchang, and if you come to New York, you should go to kopchang story, and that is the in K Town. That's the place that I try kopchang for the first time in New York, and it just like took me out of the world, and I like literally started sobbing because it was so 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 good, and I love all that fatty bite and it's basically like 
fat, but it has so much flavor. And like my favorite part to go with it is all the chives uh, that you eat. I think when you go out to eat gopchang, like chives mostly come as a side dish and like the, the kind of grassy, like a bitter part of chives goes so well with that fatty bites. And I just get never tired of it. And it's such a enabler for like soju. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know? Yes. So yeah. the second, then we went to the next level and I'm not sure if you've had this. It's a Hongyoho Samhap. Uh, yes, that I have not tried, um, but I don't know whether I want to try it because like Hong- It's good. It, yeah, it's, it's, good. it's just that like, so like Pong is like the hometown though, you know, it's like the east side of Korea. So like I didn't right. even see any restaurant that was served somehow. Um, but I think that's mostly like the Western side of Korea and kind of what's populated there. And I want to try it, but ever like some people who would really try it on camera, like, you know, I've seen like food TV and such in Korea and they all look so like painful and, Oh, I don't know. No. I think it's one of those food that you really have to build a tolerance to appreciate it. it it's I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a completely different tack to it. Um, the the hongyo hongyo is basically a skate that's been um, fermented, and yes. with the way that the fish, certain types of fish, when 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 it breaks down, right, uh-huh. it releases a good amount of ammonia. Yeah, so it ammonia, has a, right. it has a strong ammonia taste, right? The trick isn't the hongyo, it's the samha. So I don't think anyone would eat just, and maybe people do, but if you're trying to eat just a piece of, 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 of rotting fish, there's no point to it. Yeah. But somehow this miracle happens when you stack it with roast pork, right. kimchi, and a leaf, and you think, well, maybe I don't need you know, all these things and you eat it and it's, you've got the richness of the, of the, of the pork right. and then you've got the, the tang and the bite of the, um, the kimchi, but something's missing and the fish is the missing bit that if you tried the same samhap without the hongyo, it, you feel like it's less than. Mm. Yeah. So I, it's great. There's gotta be a reason why like it goes with those food. You know, I feel like the kimchi that goes with the hongyong is also very different from just normal kimchi. I think it has to be fermented in a certain way. Or I don't know whether they use like a really fermented one or like really fresh one because those taste different. Um, mm. So, yeah, I would love to try it when I have an opportunity to do so in Korea, hopefully this year. And I will be excited to share that experience <laughs> with everyone. And then we went uh, towards Daegu. Um, and I had something called malyuko. Mal Have you had that? Can you say that again? Malyuko. Malyuko. I don't know what that is. It's like horse meat carpaccio. Oh, malyuko. Oh my god. Okay. I don't like. Do people still? I don't. I don't know whether Korea still serves that. When was there that? was one? It's it's very it's very local to this one part of town, and you know. With Korea nowadays, getting getting anywhere, just hop on KTX. It's yeah. the high speed train, and you can go. and And it turned out that we were going near a town that had it on the way down to to Daegu. And he said, "Oh, we've got to try this. Let me know what you think." Oh my god, it's good. What is good? What is it? 
like texture like is it chew- texture wise texture wise it is it is um a little it's slice slice thin but it's a little bit stringier than um a meat carpaccio wow. once again a lot of the a lot of these things I, yeah you know if, if the sauce is good it, it it's you know it's part of the experience not just the protein yeah I have never heard of a Korean restaurant that serves like horse. I also didn't know that Korean people ate horse. <gasps> That's a yeah. surprising factor for me, especially like Poang is so close to Taegu. So like, I'm sure that like I would have heard about it or my parents would have like, my parents are a big um, like in food and trying different restaurants as well. So like I would have like been exposed to that, but like I truly have never heard of like horse meat. In Korea, people eat different things for a different reason. I think there are times that a lot of things are kind of filtered through, filtered through like Western vision, you know, like so they wouldn't understand yes. why Asian people love intestines and like all these things. And I think it's important to kind of shift that idea of that not everything has to be like beef steak or you know, pasta. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. When we were planning this podcast, I sent you a note and said, let's make something together. And you made a kimchi jjigae and I made kimchi jjigae. And yes. then after I finished mine, I looked at your recipe and I thought, oh, I, I made a good kimchi jjigae, but there were a bunch of items that were, that were different. Some more traditional, some yes. less traditional. Tell me about your kimchi jjigae. Yeah, so my kimchi jjigae is kind of like uh, inspired by different recipes that I saw on YouTube. Um, so my mom was never really a cook, so I taught myself how to cook a lot of Korean food by watching two uh, my favorite YouTubers. One of them is Mangchi, as a lot of people know. She's kind of like the Korean Julia child. And the second person was Hung Young Longest. Uh, she is also a YouTuber focused specializing in Korean cuisine. And she was the one who sort of like introduced the idea of using the like olive oil packed um, anchovies to cook Korean food because like anchovies are used for like making dashi or like a lot, like a kind of base for a lot of Korean stews and such. But not everyone can do that or with the timing and you know kind of annoyance too so she used um the flavor packed anchovy to get started with like i think it was like a, a silken tofu soup so i was like oh my god that's such a great idea because you know those anchovy oil that's like extremely flavorful it's also salty and it kind of gets that anchovy flavor without having to make the Korean anchovy dashi. So I started with that and I add different things like bacon. Um, I also make like scallion oil with that. So like scallion oil is something that's kind of a foundational flavor for a lot of like Korean food. Um, so it's more like the white parts of the scallion. And when you're stirring like bacon, uh, anchovy oil, those chopped anchovies and scallion garlic, like it's a mixture of different fat 
all combined creating something truly magical so you've got the pork you've got the like fish oil and you've got the scallion and and that all mixed with kimchi it's such a flavorful strong delicious base for kimchi jjigae and then you kind of add water and you let it simmer and i love adding spam um that also adds another of flavor element to that completeness of the kimchi jjigae and yeah like as i'm talking about it i'm salivating and i just love like my version of kimchi jjigae so much and this was kind of like the version that i kind of came with by trying so many different methods and i swear by this no matter what i think i like my own kimchi jjigae the most <laughs> It's a smart idea. I mean, in, in terms of using, I guess if you're a traditional, you would use some type of dashi with like a dried anchovy, yes. which is, um, you know, it's great, but it's not the most practical thing, right? Exactly. But you want that marine funk. Mm-hmm. You want so, the funk. Yeah. How are you going to get it? So the so the anchovy and oil, um, you know, I use I use it for if I'm cooking like um, like a roast lamb dish. Yeah, it disappears, but there's it, it adds a uh, a lovely uh, musty heaviness to it. Exactly, there is no fishiness at all. You know, anchovies just kind of like merge into the rest of the flavors. It does not stand out. The spam thing is a different thing together. Like, what's when did you start eating spam, and and how did you figure that this is going to be great? Because I used mine when I made mine. I I, I it was more old school straight slices of pork belly that sauteed at the bottom with the, with the garlic and the onions. Yeah. Um, and the pork belly was marinated in, in like the, uh, the sweet, the rice wine. Mm. How does spam make sense? Like growing up in Korea, spam was always like a part of our pantry. Um, I know that Korea has a history with like spam with the whole American army and stuff, which I don't necessarily know the details, but I know that, there's a reason why spam is so beloved and important to Korean pantry. So it was kind of like a natural thing that Korean people started using spam into kimchi stew because like spam is relatively cheaper and it has that like a porky flavor that, you know, it will kind of replace the need to use normal pork for making kimchi chicken. And because spam is like the pork kind of, processed food it has another element of salty flavor funk that you wouldn't necessarily get with pork belly um and when you look at a lot of like korean stew slash jjigae recipes like spam is almost like a cheating element because no matter what you add if you add spam it's going to be delicious so it's kind of like a natural msg so i've had spam over rice which is a joy yeah um, and there's a crisp, and if you fry it right, there's like a, you can get a crispiness to it and, and, a, and a, you know, and there's a, a lovely soft fattiness to it. If you put the spam in the jjigae, does it break up or does it hold its shape? It holds its shape and it's so great. And like the flavors of spam gets like, um, it kind of goes through and with the broth. So it, the broth gets like saltier, more flavorful than any other thing. I'm going to try this. In Hong Kong, I was introduced to uh, 
cans of corned beef. It's kind of same thing. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's great. I know it's 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 absolutely not you know, the cans of corned beef are not healthy for you. But the ta- but if you eat it occasionally and you know, it makes you happy. So Exactly. You know, like we don't eat like spam every single day, but like when we eat it's such a joy and it's such a great pantry item and it's so versatile and i know that there are certain things that's not good for health but i prefer to be happy than like i don't know healthy so one of the things i notice in in your instagram posts and something that i believe in is it's not quite leftovers but it's more like how do you take something that you made the night before or two days before and turn it into something completely different, but using the same, you know, repurposed ingredient? Yeah. Like for example, I love that. I, I made a, I made a smoked, um, short, a smoked, um, beef rib. Mm-hmm. And then I had some excess beef ribs. So I chopped it up and then the beef ribs became, you know, a smoked addition to a Mac and cheese. Um, I'll Yum. poutine anything. So if it's if there's any leftover meat and I've got a gravy, I'm making poutine. Um, yeah. And then I saw sure. with your kimchi that you almost made something like in Japan they call it a doria. A doria oh, is, is it's great. It's 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 the, the the best thing in the world. It's basically a bed of rice, some sort of savory topping, a ton of cheese, and then you bake it. Yeah, I did that with pasta. So you you did this with your <laughs> yeah, fried rice, right? That too. Um, so I think I kind of go with different route depending on how I feel. So I always love making this like a second leftover inspired dish as much as making the first one. Uh, that's why I always make a huge batch whenever I cook. Um, so like for kimchi jjigae, uh, if I have some leftovers, I would either make kimchi fried rice or I could also make kimchi pasta. I could also make like kimchi tteokbokki. Like, you know, it, it's such a great sauce base that can really go into different directions um, depending on what you're craving. And it's like so magical. It's like totally different from your original eating experience, which is like kimchi jjigae with a bit of rice. Okay, I have a question for you. What's better, tteokbokki uh, with a meaty pasta sauce or with bacon, egg, and cheese? I would go with tteokbokki with like the meaty sauce because like the the meat bolognese sauce is already good. I like it, but like it's like an extended version of that compared to like tteokbokki bacon, egg, and cheese. It's more like you are starting from scratch. So like the meat bolognese tteokbokki, it's like a double amount of flavors in my opinion. Okay. So the last set of questions I yeah. have have to do with social media, you know, building your Instagram account. You have your own merchandise. You have, you know, you, you have your own brand. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? I am really happy that people think that I have a brand. <laughs> I'm like, I never really planned out like, oh, this is going to be my brand. But like, I'm just genuinely happy that people see me as someone with the brand. But 
yeah, this all just kind of came out of the idea of like, how can I make myself different from the rest of people? You know, food Instagram is, there are just so many out there. So I was thinking, what is it that I can offer that's different? What can be my catchphrase? What can be something that's constantly reminding people that it's coming from my voice? Um, so the whole eating my feelings, cooking my feelings, like all of this kind of came out of, you know, my friend's observation of like, you are very, very expressive, like when you're eating. And like, I thought everyone would be like me. Uh, so I find people who are eating certain things and just like, literally staying quiet are so odd, because like, how can you stay so quiet when you're eating something good? It's almost like you can help yourself to like, act a certain way and I think people really liked seeing me being truly happy and I love that I can make other people happy by me being happy eating certain things and eating things that make me happy so that's sort of like when the idea of like eating my feelings and cooking my feelings came out and that's when I wanted to go into you know making merch so that I could sort of share this connection with people beyond just Instagram and I have like my icon made with my friend um, because I think I'm a very animated person. So it kind of makes sense for me to like create this persona um, for like either social media or some, you know, other things. And I'm happy that everything sort of feels coherent and I'm happy that people see that as a brand and I hope the brand continues to grow <laughs> one way or another. What's next for you? Um, I don't know. I definitely want to continue building this community, but I want to pursue more of a hosting, just more like face fronting uh, content. Um, so I want to build this community that we can just be unapologetically ourselves and just be expressive and talk and nerd out this food. Like I can talk about food like 24 seven and there's a sense of like connection that I feel when I talk to people about food and I, whatever the medium is, I want to focus on, I don't want to lose a sight of what made me get to cooking first so like they were, I was thinking about like do I want to go into like test kitchen roles like what what is next for my career but I think what's important for me is that I don't lose this genuine joy of cooking and feeding for myself so whatever happens next like I still want to be genuine with that excitement so that I can continue to spread that to other people through different content. Jamesy what a great sentiment to end our conversation. Thank you for appearing as a guest and telling your story. This has been the Eat the World podcast. Thank you for listening.